going through Revelation, as I read earlier from Revelation, part of what God is doing that causes so much strife in the end times is this um, unrelenting desire in his heart to gather people in from all nations around the throne through the blood of Christ. If, if there wasn't a mission, there would be no suffering. There would be no trial, really. This is, uh, these, these, these are the front lines of this fight. And the adversary knows this and will not rest, even though he knows he is on borrowed time. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, is the ruler of this world. Jesus was very clear in John 12. He has been cast out by the conquering life, death, and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has in doing so overcome the world. Satan is currently bound only in the sense that he's presently being prohibited from gathering the nations to mount an all-out assault to destroy the church and to end the spread of the gospel. He will be loosed at the end of time to do just that. But Satan is not omnipresent. So where is he right now? What is he doing? What's he involved in right now? What is he doing on the leash that God presently holds? In the time Revelation was written, he was in Pergamum, the church we look at tonight. Suffering has fallout. Some of it very positive, as you heard by the the Chinese officials coming in. Two more churches were planted, right? So some of the uh, results of suffering are wonderful and God works through it. Others are not so wonderful. Satan is very shrewd. Um, In Smyrna last week, they were about to suffer the ultimate penalty for belonging to Christ. They were about to die for it. Um, Which, by the way, the churches in Revelation prove that the church should not expect to avoid tribulation. I don't know how we got this in our heads. It's almost an insult to the church around the world. We have the pleasure of talking about days of suffering coming, maybe. They're in it right now. They're in the teeth of the beast and will continue probably to suffer horribly from marginalization just from their families, from their cultures, to imprisonment, to torture, to forced poverty, to literal death. So for us to just think that tribulation is somewhere off in the future or even great tribulation is somewhere off in the future. And if you're a Christian, you won't have to go through that. Try telling that to the church in Afghanistan right now, right? That, that you'll be able to avoid. Don't worry. You'll just magically get taken out before the, the real trouble starts. How does it get more real than that? How does it get more to suffer than to die for the name of Christ? If our theology of the end times, whatever it may be, is banking on never having to go through real suffering, we will not be a conquering church when that time comes. So Pergamum, the issue now is the threat of suffering and how it can distract our focus on the truth and actually invite us to compromise. Jesus commended the church in Pergamum for its faithful witness in suffering persecution, but called it to repentance because it had compromised on the truth and commanded them to repent in order to avoid judgment. Jesus desires his church to conquer the temptation to compromise even in the midst of suffering for his name. And here doing so by holding fast to our new identity in Christ. Let me pray, and I I will go as quickly as I can. All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your heart. Father, you are the missionary. God, you are a sender. You are a goer. We praise you and we thank you, Father. We are here because of that effort because of your sovereign will and your sovereign grace. We are here in Moundsville tonight 
as your people light for this valley. So God, be with us. Open our hearts to your word tonight. Let us hear. Please help me be concise and speak clearly. Watch over me. Watch over all who hear, Father. Help us be attentive. Help me not prohibit that, I ask and pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Verses 12 through 17 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the, hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Pergamon was one of, again, another one of the largest cities in the ancient world. By the time the letter was written in the early 90s AD, the population was about 190,000 people. Bangkok is, is 10 million, right? So how times have changed. Things are so much bigger. It had once been the capital of the Roman province of Asia until Caesar uh, Augustus uh, made it Ephesus as the center of Asia Minor, but it wasn't so important for political or economic reasons. It was so important and vital because of its devotion to the imperial cult. That, that's in all the churches, but particularly Pergamum, it was the center of where people worshiped Caesar as God. They had also dedicated a temple in 29 BC to, I quote, the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma. They'd also built another temple and a medical college to a god named Asclepios, the savior, they called him, the patron god of healing. He was symbolized by a serpent, believe it or not. So it was the center of worship for various pagan cults, the worship of Athena, the worship of Dionysius. There was a, At the city gate, there was a giant altar built to Zeus that stood 800 feet above the city itself. Satan dwelt in Pergamum. Jesus is identifying Pergamum as the base of Satan's operations at that time in the world. So, it's the, the fact that it's the political religious center of the empire, that that's why they're so vital to the empire, and they revere Caesar as a deity, and to refuse that meant treason to the state. It was very difficult for believers to maintain any type of real high profile about their faith without running into conflict with the pagan religion in Pergamum, over whom Satan stood as the king. He dwelt there. This was where he lived. He had made this city his base of operations in the world. And listen, knowing that, of all the things Jesus could have said to his church or that they wished he would say, do you know what he didn't say? You guys should move. You should get out of there. Satan dwells there. It's where his throne on the earth is right now. In that sense, you should move. Absolutely not. What does he tell them? He tells them again that he knows them in verse 13. In Smyrna, he knew their works. Here he says, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. I know you live where Satan lives. But remember, John, this same man that is writing the book of Revelation, as he hears it from the Lord, had written in 1 John 4, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Imagine what it was for them to hear that word from Jesus. I know where you live. 
but I'm greater than he is. And the description he gives of himself to Pergamum is fitting of their needs. He's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's a shortened quotation again from the vision in chapter 1, verse 16. Here in verse 16 and a few verses down from verse 12, he'll reiterate that that's who he is. So the tone of the letter to Pergamum is judgment. And the power of the word Jesus speaks is the strength for these believers. This is how to continue in faithful fidelity to Christ, the word of Christ, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And him describing himself with that is also a swipe to those who worship Rome. The sword was the symbol of the Roman proconsul's sovereignty over the lives of everyone in Pergamum, everyone in the empire. The symbol was a sword. And Jesus says, no, my word is sovereign over every area of life. I rule the world. This church had faithfully withstood persecution. In verse 13, they'd even stood fast during the martyr of one of their own. Antipas had paid the ultimate price for his testimony. It's very interesting. The persecution of Christians... Uh, instigated initially by Nero, uh, Nero Caesar back in the 60s AD. That was really limited to Rome proper in its surrounding areas. Uh, three decades later, by the time the letter was written, Domitian had given himself the title of Our Lord and God. But even then, it wasn't still, the, the, the murder of Christians still wasn't an empire-wide policy that mandated the killing of Christians. But here's the thing, once the culture changes... Once the culture goes a certain way, in a city like this that revered and worshipped Caesar, it didn't matter if persecution was state-sponsored or not. It was going to happen. Uh, it doesn't, persecution does not have to be state-sponsored. All right, It just has to be people hating you enough to want to kill you. And as culture changes, this may come. And so they were suspicious of anyone who declined to honor the emperor as God. So you'd have mob violence. You'd have arbitrary laws created by local magistrates to make life harder on Christians. And so when Satan had exerted his strength where he dwelt to silence the faithful witness of Antipas, the church in Pergamum had stood fast. A witnessing church will be a persecuted church, G.K. Beale says, but they were compromised within, we find. Isn't that amazing? That even though they withstood suffering, they're compromised or have been compromised within. They'd approved of the Nicolaitan heir. We read about that in Ephesus. Um, while standing fast against persecution, they had let the enemy slip in through the back door. Look at 14 and 15 again. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, during Israel's wilderness wanderings, we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about the church in Ephesus, God prevented the prophet Balaam, who had been hired by Balak, to curse the Israelites. He prevented him from doing so in Numbers 22 to 24. So Balaam found a much more subtle way to ambush the people of God. He advised Balak the king to send Moabite women to seduce Israelite men into sexual immorality and idolatry. This alienated Israel from their covenant Lord. That's something much greater than Moab could have inflicted on them. Like death. It would have been much greater damage to be alienated from the Lord. And the Lord warned Israel through a plague. And 24,000 died in Numbers 25, 1 through 9. The Nicolaitans at Pergamum, as they were doing in Ephesus, were using Balaam's strategy, luring believers into sexual and spiritual infidelity. Most likely it was a matter of food sacrificed to idols at 
their formal feasts or rituals, a part of which was participating in sexually immoral things. That's probably what he's talking about. Not simply matters of differing convictions, but they had formal feasts that the purpose of them was to eat food in worship of an idol, to take part in sexual immorality as a part of a worship to that idol. And this was infiltrating the church either at this point in their hearts with spiritual infidelity, possibly they had gone the full way with participating in the sexual immorality as well. This is most likely what they all did before they converted from paganism. And God's people are called to flee immorality, flee idolatry. Dabbling with these things is a denial by our outward appearance that we belong to Jesus, who is a very jealous husband, who has no rivals, will suffer no rivals. Only some had given into this error, realized, but the whole church is called to repent in verse 16. So you have those who are practicing it, but also those who have tolerated it or allowed it, probably among the eldership or the leadership in the church. Repentance would mean exercising church discipline. It would mean refusing to tolerate this teaching. It must be confronted. Or Jesus says, if you don't, I will come to you soon and war against them, the Nicolaitans in the church, with the sword of my mouth, with his word. Not every promise or threat like this of Jesus' coming in Revelation refers to the second coming, the main coming. Jesus isn't speaking here of his literal bodily return to the earth, I don't believe, but he's currently walking among the lampstands. He will come soon by intervening in the church's life through his sovereign control of all things and the work of his spirit to call the Nicolaitans to account for their works and their teaching. Just like when death and illness affected the church in Corinth for their disregard over one another in the Lord's Supper. The same type of thing was going to happen here unless they repent. And so in verse 17 we read, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that is, repents. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To conquer in Pergamum was to repent for allowing false teaching, for partaking in immorality and idolatry in the church, for the sake of fidelity to the Lord who bought them. The church needed washed clean, purified and renewed all through the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. Spiritual idolatry is portrayed in terms of sexual immorality. So again, either they were fully participating in these things or in their hearts by accepting these false things were perverting the faith. The Nicolaitan influence in the church at Pergamum had put a stumbling block in the way of believers in the church at Pergamum. We know Jesus in Mark does not take kindly to this at all. Those who cause his little ones to stumble. This is serious compromise. It's an inherent danger, apparently, when seeking to withstand persecution, to not falter. Believe it or not, it becomes easier when we're doing that to forget how critical the truth of God's Word actually is to our survival, to our fidelity, to our faithfulness. The enemy is relentless. He'll take whatever we give him. We, you won't bend to persecution on the, from the outside? Fine, I'll infect the inside. One way or the other, I'll tear you down. And false doctrine gives way to sinful practices. So they must repent and be purified. They must conquer. And if they will do this, comes this remarkable promise in verse 17. He'll give them the hidden manna and a white stone on which is written a new name, known only to the one who receives it. That's a husband talking. 
Manna was the bread from heaven with which God fed Israel in the desert. Revelation, really much of the New Testament, portrays the church's life between the ascension of Jesus and his return as a sojourn in the wilderness where exiles here. But the church is sustained as Israel was by God in this wandering. And just as Moses revealed that the manna pointed to something deeper, that we don't live by bread alone, Israel, you understand this, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, right, the sharp two-edged sword, Jesus revealed that the true bread from heaven, the true bread from heaven was the word, our Lord Jesus, who was crucified for us. So our circumstances may become horrible, just like wandering in a desert. But Jesus sustains his church by his word, beloved. He remains faithful. So the one who conquers here, who not only stands fast against pressure from the outside where Satan's throne is, but also resists the temptation to compromise the truth for the sake of their conveniences to make things easier on them, does so by the living word. Jesus Christ himself, the white stone, points to the end of the church's sojourn in the wilderness. White stones were used for various purposes in the ancient world. I think the one most pertinent here, or two of the most pertinent for Pergamum, was that white stones were tokens in court that signified a juror's decision to acquit the defendant. A black stone meant they were guilty. Obviously, this is powerful. The promise of a white stone means there will be no one left to accuse us, beloved. We are not guilty. Jesus says this is what repentance accomplishes. A white stone was also used as a token to enter a feast. And we have been invited to partake in the messianic banquet at the end of time, feasting with Jesus. The white stone is a gift given to those who conquer by faith in the word of Jesus. But what is written on it is even more amazing and beautiful for us than its color. Just as the name of the word of God who rides a white horse in Revelation 19, 12, and 13 is known only to himself, this name is a secret the Lord shares only with its recipient, each and every believer. The fulfillment of a promise in Isaiah 62, 2 and 65, 15, that God's people will be given a new name when all is said and done. Beloved, because we're new creations, remember, we've been born again into a new family and with it one day comes a new name. We need a new name that suits this new us and God will give us one suitable to the fact that we'll dwell in a new heavens and a new earth. Beloved, so hear the comfort of the promise of Jesus to his people. This is the intimacy between a husband and a wife here. I'll give you a new name and it's only for you. Only you will know it. You know how this is when you're in love with your spouse and there are just things between you that are just between you. Nobody else knows them. They aren't for anybody else. You would never say them to anybody else. How much better, beloved, how much more beautiful and true is the intimacy of Jesus for his church. Our name is kept safe for us in his hands. It will never be subject to corruption. Beloved, these are the truths that come from the sword of his mouth that lay us open to remake us. That's what swords do. And the same word that heals us in grace and mercy and righteousness, that even struggling with sin, we would dwell with our eternal love unbroken forever. A hidden name for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 
three, a new name for you and I there. Antonio will be no more. So, beloved, tonight, in the midst of our difficulties, even our trials and suffering that will come and will increase if we truly give ourselves to Christ as His church, no matter how hard it becomes to follow Him in this world, no matter how wicked and idolatrous our culture and the culture immediately around us, our nation, our world, I, I, I'm not putting you on the spot, Nathan. I just, we're praying for you in that place where the temptations will be so heavy. All right? We'll pray for you. We'll pray for you. Jesus knows where we dwell. That's what we need to remember. He knows where we dwell. He knows we live here. He knows the temptations unique to this place that would cause us to compromise. He knows where Nathan will dwell and the temptations he will face there. Not just to sin, but to compromise. Right? Jesus knows where we live. He knows our address. So, let me ask you a question. Okay? I just want us to consider in our own hearts, and I'm asking you, church, each one of you that belong to this church, would each of you consider beginning to lay this question before the Lord each week as you pray? Would you consider saying to the Lord, what would you say to Moundsville Baptist Church right now? God, what would you commend us for? What would you have against us? Where are we being faithful? Where must we repent? Beloved, I'm just, I'm just asking you. I love our church. I, I, I don't think there's this rampant problem or something here. I'm not, that, that's not it. I'm saying, could we get before the Lord and ask Him in all sincerity, what would you say to us? What would you say to us? What would it be? And then would we respond in faith to what God reveals? Of what must we repent either to retain or to reclaim fidelity to our divine husband? You want Jesus. I want Jesus. So let's listen. We're a church. We ought to be one. We're a church. We ought to be one. Right? Our lampstand ought to burn brightly in the Ohio Valley so that the effects are not only felt here but felt all over America, all over the nations like Thailand, like Mexico, everywhere else in between and outside. The wickedness of these days is no surprise to our Savior. No surprise to Jesus the way things are going. We were made new in His image. We were this group of people for this time on planet Earth. This is the church God has raised up for this harvest of souls on planet Earth. That's why we're here. We've been given a mission from heaven We've been given salvation that is secure so that in giving ourselves away, we lose nothing, right? To deny who Jesus has called us to be, to refuse to be shaped by His truth is idolatrous and immoral. Will we be faithful to His Word at Moundsville Baptist Church? This is not ours. This belongs to Him. He lays claim on us. He lays claim on our decisions. He lays claim on our secrets. He loves us. Beloved, He loves you. We belong to Him. No one can snatch us from His hand. So let us be who we were made new to be. The gospel is what holds us together. It's not only the source of our new identity, 
Right? It's the source of our hope. Do you see what Jesus is doing? In the sinfulness you're facing, I want you to remember that you belong to me. That I have your name hidden for you. That I will provide for you from heaven. Beloved, this is our defense. This is how we reject and stand against immorality and idolatry and compromise. Remember who you are. Believe the gospel. Press into Jesus in these last days. Press into Jesus. He desires that his church would conquer the temptation to compromise, even in the midst of suffering for his name, by holding fast to what the gospel tells us is true and promises us in a new identity in Christ.